Welcome to the Global Research News Hour in the Summer. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, on the homeland of the Metis in the historical territory of the Nahiowak and the Nakota. My name is Michael Welch. The 60s was an era where a lot of revolutionary thinking entered into people's thoughts, but part of that era was a string of four assassinations taking place in that decade in less than five years that seems to be generally indistinguishable from the 60s. The assassinations were of John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Robert F. Kennedy. On this show, we're exploring these assassinations and the cover-up, and we are going to start with the most recent assassination, that of Robert Kennedy. I had the privilege of introducing a special guest to our listeners. His name is James Eugenio. While he would have been barely a grade schooler when the murders happened, he has become what they call a guru of the probers to every detail describing the assassinations and the aspects that linked them. He authored the book Destiny Betrayed, probing the garrison investigation of the JFK assassination, which was greatly expanded in 2012. He also wrote Reclaiming Parkland in 2013, expanding again in 2016, and reissued again with additional material in the 2018 book The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today. He also edited and co-authored the book The Assassinations, Probe Magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. In addition to all of that, he has an MA in Contemporary American History from California State University, Northridge. He is a frequent contributor at Robert Perry's Consortium News. He has appeared as guest on numerous talk shows, and he has retired from his role as a professional educator. Mr. Diogenio has a website, kennedysandking.com, where he has book reviews, news, and feature articles related to one or more of the assassination targets. I welcomed him onto the show. How did this uh, idea of exploring the assassination you know, prop up your interest? I mean, you must have been from a very oh, early age. Okay, this is, this is an interesting story. Um, I came out to California uh, to go to film school, all right? And I ended up going to uh, Cal State Northridge uh, to get my uh, degree in that. And so at the, uh, when we were about to graduate, a friend of mine who I was working with at the time said, Jim, why don't you write a script? And I said, about what? And he said, well, what do you think would be an interesting subject? And I said, probably the JFK assassination. All right. And he said, well, how would you want to tell the story? And I said, probably to this Jim Garrison guy. Okay. And uh, so I started to write a script on this, right? I didn't get very far because one morning I picked up Variety magazine and I saw Oliver Stone had purchased the rights to Jim Garrison's on the trail of the assassins. So there went my idea, 
okay, for writing a screenplay. So what I did is I turned that into my first book, which was the first edition of Destiny Betrayed. That was back in, I think, 1993. Now, as you mentioned, that book has been completely redone because um, of the something called the Assassinations Records Review Board. See, when Oliver released his film back in 91, it created such a sensation that it was a huge, huge news story for ongoing weeks upon weeks, going months upon months. And so Congress created a body that went ahead and declassified all this material that had been being held by um, the CIA, the FBI, the State Department, et cetera. And this was literally millions of pages. And so I rewrote that book from almost start to finish. And the second edition is, is much longer, is much more improved. And that's the book that I, that I recommend your listeners purchase, the second edition, because it's, it's so different now because we have all these documents. Unfortunately, we never got one of those on the RFK case. Okay, uh, even though, like, like I said, that was the last assassination of the 60s. And the reason the Robert Kennedy assassination is so important is because in many ways, that was the end of the 60s. That was the premature end of the 1960s when Robert Kennedy was shot and then passed away, you know, in the uh, pantry of the Ambassador Hotel in June of 1968, right? Um, that case, of course, was considered an open and shut case because everybody said, well, we saw this Serhan guy and he had this uh, handgun and uh, he was firing, etc. And uh, nobody ever thought it could be anything else, right? You know, and... As Allard Lowenstein, the attorney, later said, you know, what's so remarkable about that is not that so many people thought that it was an open and shut case. It's that so many intelligent people thought that it couldn't be anything else. All right. And then all of a sudden, after Sirhan was convicted, <clears throat> people started doing some investigating. And they discovered that, hey, there's a lot of problems here, all right? For example, even though Sirhan was in front of Robert Kennedy, Thomas Noguchi's autopsy said that all the bullets that struck Robert Kennedy came from behind, came at an extreme upward angle, and came at a very, very close range to Robert Kennedy's body. <clears throat> In other words, the bullet that struck Robert Kennedy, that killed him, that came in low on the... Right it came in at a range of one to three inches. N nobody, nobody thought that Sirhan was anywhere near close to that 
that close to Robert Kennedy. Plus, he was in front of him. Mm-hmm. All right. You know, so this one problem. The other problem is that there's too many bullet holes. Robert Kennedy was not the only person who was hit that night. Mm-hmm. Okay. I believe there are four other people that were hit that night. Plus, there were all these holes found in the ceiling tiles and in the door jam. Okay. In the, in the uh, swinging doors that went in, into and out of the pantry. All right. So there's there's too many bullets, okay? And there's the there's the the proximity and the distance and also being from behind. All right? Now, there's also the problem of there was a guy who was in that position to hit Robert Kennedy, okay? And ended up with uh powder burns okay after the shooting that was staying eugene caesar who was who was a sort of moonlighting as an security guard that night okay now this guy was right behind robert kennedy all right and he, very he much have been shot right he was in the perfect position to actually do the actual shooting of Robert Kennedy. Mm. All right. Now it turns out that he actually possessed a handgun. All right. That was very, very close and similar. Okay. To the Ivor Johnson that Sirhan had that night. So on top of the fact that he's in the perfect position, he also had a handgun very similar to the one that Sirhan used. So that's why many people, as time went on, mm-hmm. began to suspect that he is a very, very suspicious character in the actual shooting of Robert Kennedy. And in fact, as Robert Kennedy was sliding to the floor, okay, he actually grabbed Thane Eugene Caesar's necktie. Okay, as he was falling down. That's how close he was to them, to him. And then there's another factor about the Robert Kennedy assassination that makes it very suspicious. It's the legendary girl in the polka dot dress. All right, there's a woman who was seen with Sirhan that night at the Ambassador Hotel. And in fact, the last memory that Sirhan has is having a cup of coffee with this girl in the polka dot dress. All right. And she actually leads him into the pantry that night and is standing like next to him at the time of the shooting. And there's one witness who said that She looked at him, he looked at her, okay? And she did something like a smile, all right? And then Sirhan burst forward and started shooting, Mm -hmm. all right? So this is very, very suspicious. And some people, actually more than some people, quite a lot of people think that she was there 
and wearing that dress, okay, as a sort of what they call a post-hypnotic su suggestion, a symbol. Because not very okay. many people would wear a, 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 a dress like that. It would be something. Well, yeah, you're exactly right, Mike. Why on earth would you wear such a recognizable dress as you're leading this guy into the pantry and then standing next to him? Okay. Now, what makes her even more suspicious is that when she ran out the back of the hotel, there was a girl named Sandra Serrano. Okay, standing outside and she was running down the stairs of the ambassador saying, we shot him, we shot him. And Sandy said, who did you shoot? And she said, Senator Kennedy. Okay, as she ran down the stairs. All right. So that exchange with Sandy Serrano got on national television that night. Sandra Van Oker, who I believe was working for NBC, did an interview for with her, Sandy Serrano, and she related this story, okay, about the girl in the polka dot dress, right? Very, and that ended up being a very, very serious problem for the LAPD afterwards. So, like Allard Lowenstein said, what's so puzzling is that so many intelligent people just went ahead and passed on the RFK case when in fact, and this has been my experience, yeah. it's easier to convince somebody that the RFK case was a conspiracy than it is the JFK case was a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Simply because of the circumstances of, of Sirhan being in front of Robert Kennedy, yet all the bullets that hit Robert Kennedy come from the back, mm -hmm. all right? So it was, it, what's so strange about this is that the first serious book exposing all this material did not come out till 1976. And that was the uh, Bill Turner, John Christian book, okay? Uh, the assassination of Robert Kennedy. That didn't come out till seven years later. Mm. Now this is, it's very, very strange. And like I said, historically speaking, the Robert Kennedy assassination was sort of like the swan song for the 1960s, oh. that era that had begun when President Kennedy was elected with so much, you know, optimism and reasons for hope, you know, and and somehow we're going to get this country moving again mm -hmm. in the space of five years from 1963 to 1968 with those four assassinations, it, it's all over. And Robert Kennedy, of course, was the last one. That's why. If you if you listen to some of the audio tapes, okay, the, of the of what went on in the pantry that night with all those people, they're they're actually and because you know everybody struck out at Sirhan, okay, and then people are yelling, no, no, don't kill him, we don't want another Dallas, okay, 
<laughs> they're instantly thinking that night as it's going on. Oh, my God, this is a Kennedy assassination all over again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I wonder. Yeah. I mean, we'll just break open some of those details uh, in a minute, but maybe you could just let's like draw the curtain back, go back a little bit and talk about the, the fact that this is Robert Kennedy running for president and it was after uh, the the California primary that where he had won and it was looking good for him to to go and become president maybe you could talk a little bit about exactly what kind of a man Robert Kennedy was and and, and who who might have uh, you know a, a bit of a beef with him who would be inclined or motivated to take him out because uh, as I understand it I mean Robert Kennedy was I don't know. Maybe he made uh, uh, Bernie Sanders today look like a, a conservative by comparison. I mean, what are some of the people that that would have, have a beef with Robert Kennedy? Well, what happened was that after John F. Kennedy was assassinated, Robert Kennedy that day was very suspicious about what happened to his brother, and in fact, he made. I think he made a phone call to the CIA headquarters and talked to John McCone. And he said, were some of your guys involved in this? Yeah, when you say something like that, you know, right after the assassinations happened, I think you're, you're, you're not thinking that Oswald did it. All right, so, uh, so about a week later, he called William Walton, who was a friend of the family, and who was going on a cultural tour of the Soviet Union. He called him out to his house, Hickory Hill, okay, which I think was in Maryland. And as Walton came in, Bobby and Jackie Kennedy were sitting in the dining room. And he goes into the dining room and Bobby Kennedy has a letter. All right, he says, I want you to give this to the guy you're going to meet in Russia, and I want him to then forward it to the Kremlin, all right? And in the letter, it said that although this Oswald guy is being made out the fall guy, we both know that a domestic conspiracy was responsible for John F. Kennedy's death. Lyndon Johnson is too beholden to big business to continue the search for detente that you and my brother were starting, okay? I will stay on as attorney general for a little while, but then I will resign my position. I'll run for another political spot, and then I will run for the presidency again. And at that time, you and I can continue the work, okay, that you started with my brother. So th this is the backdrop to this whole thing. Okay, Robert Kennedy knows something big has gone on. He knows what his brother was doing because he was one of his closest advisors, okay? And so then he decides that once I get this civil rights bill through that my brother wanted, I'll then resign and then I'll run for a spot and he did in the Senate from New York, okay? And then I'll run for the presidency again. Now, what happened in 1968, Robert Kennedy had become one of Johnson's 
most ferocious critics on the Vietnam War. All right. Very, very outspoken about the whole Vietnam thing. All right. And because I think because Bobby understood that JFK had planned on pulling out of Vietnam. All right. He, he decided uh, in 63 that it was time to get out of there, that we're not making any progress. We can't really win. All right. And so uh, so he understood this. OK. And so he had become a, a, a really, really harsh critic of this whole Vietnam policy. And so what happened is that he had decided to run against Johnson before the New Hampshire primary. But then when McCarthy got in, Bobby, you know, I don't think I should say anything right now because I don't want to impact that primary. So then after Johnson almost lost that primary in New Hampshire is when Kennedy jumped into the race and he was doing very well. He won, I think, just about, yeah, every primary entered except one, the Oregon primary, which was a week before California. And then in a, a really tremendous effort by people like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, he turned out a lot of minority voters that usually don't vote in those primaries. And that's what allowed him to win the California primary. And I think that night he was on the phone with Richard Daly because the uh, convention was held in Chicago and, and he was getting daily support, you know, uh, to win at the convention because the last guy who was going to run against him was Hubert Humphrey. But he had all kinds of problems because he was uh, forced into supporting the war because he was Johnson's vice president. And so everything looked like it was really, really good. And Robert Kennedy, I have to tell you, this race he ran for the presidency in 1968 was really, really remarkable. It was they ended up calling themselves the, the have nothing campaign. Okay. In other words, in other words, we're for the people who really don't have anything in this country. Okay. Those are the people who are really our constituency. Okay. The minority groups, the poor, the working class, etc. And when you can win a state like Indiana with that kind of constituency, which he did, you know, that 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 is really saying something. Robert Kennedy, by this time, OK, had become in relative terms pretty much a radical. OK. All right. And really, I, I, in my opinion, if you look back at the whole political landscape, you know, from then to now, there just weren't very many people I can think of who were serious candidates for the presidency who were as far out as Bobby Kennedy was at that time. Okay, because and, and this is what I think happened to Bobby Kennedy. I think he realized that with the assassination of his brother, he now represented all of the hope and aspiration that had been sucked out of the system 
when Bobby, when JFK was killed, he now became the icon. For, and all you have to do is look at the 64 convention. When Bobby Kennedy got up to speak, he got something. I, there's been various estimates at how long the ovation was for him. I've seen like nine minutes. I've seen 15 minutes. I've even seen some as long as 21 minutes. Okay. Applause. Yeah, the applause. And, and that's what, and he understood, you know, this isn't really for me. This is really for the memory of my brother. Okay. And he now became the kind of, you know, the, the guy who was now carrying on his back, you know, all of those hopes and dreams and aspirations for the future that had been dashed in Dallas. All right. Okay. And so to, to give you one example, when Johnson took over, one of the programs that Kennedy had started, the Alliance for Progress, which was meant to give loans to uh, governments in South America to try and build up their infrastructure and homes and things like that. Okay, that JFK had started that. Well, Johnson didn't like the program very much. Okay, and he was friends with the Rockefeller family. Okay, and they didn't like the fact that the government was doing all these things and, you know, changing some of the power structures there in Latin America. So Bobby Kennedy took a trip to Latin America. I think this was in 1965 when he was in his Senate seat. And he was very disappointed with the briefing he got from the State Department about who he was supposed to see and what he was supposed to say. And as he was leaving the office, he said, I think it was Richard Goodwin who was with him. He said words to the effect, it sounds like we're working for United Fruit again. Okay. <laughs> so, oh, then, yeah. <laughs> so then when he goes down there, when he goes down there, some of the things... Some of the things he said and some of the things he did were so extreme that they didn't get reported in the United States. Okay. Uh, you know, for, like, like, for example, he went down into a copper mine. I'm, I'm not sure where this was. It might have been, it might have been Columbia. Okay. He went and he looked at to look at the working conditions. And so then when he came back up, he said something like, if I had to work in a place like this, I'd be a communist too. Okay, <laughs> so, so then he went to some uh, some uh, uh, farming area, and and the talk. He's actually started talking to the people working in the fields, you know. And this and this one guy told him about how he was he hadn't been paid in two weeks, and how the landlord was trying to screw him over. Well, Bobby Kennedy went to the guy, the landlord's house. And he starts bawling them out, you know, <laughs> for the complaints of these workers, et cetera. OK. And so by this time, by this time, the word had gotten out and there were little kids running after him saying, Viva Kennedy, Viva Kennedy. <laughs> OK. Then I, on one of the most remarkable things he did. OK. I think this might have been Brazil. OK. He went to see the the new president because Goulart had been overthrown in 64 
and a new guy had come in in 65. So he went to visit this guy and took a little, you know, a photo session with them. Then on the way back in the open car limousine, he saw the soldiers holding back the crowd from him. So they couldn't touch him and shake hands, et cetera. Bobby Kennedy jumped out of the car, stood up and said, down with the government, onto the palace. Okay. <laughs> so, so those are the kind of things that he was doing. Okay. Now, that's why they didn't get reported in the press. And that's why I say by, by, by this time, Bobby Kennedy had become, and I actually, I've actually said this to other people. By this time, Bobby Kennedy made his brother look like a moderate by this time. He was so far out there. That was James DiEugenio a historian and researcher speaking from his home in Burbank, California, on the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy in June of 1968. The topic is part one of a summer series airing on the Global Research News Hour, a show funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. The show is also broadcast on other Canadian community radio stations across Canada, as well as in the United States, and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. My name is Michael Welch. Here again is more of our conversation. Okay, so so we've gotten a, quite a, a good look at the, I guess, the motives of the people who would have taken him down. And... Um, you you mentioned a lot of the uh, you know during the primary and he was moving down the passage and uh, he he got shot. Everybody looking at Sirhan Sirhan, but there were other players involved as as you mentioned. Um, now, at the end of it, they 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 got Sirhan Sirhan and all of the other uh, people like Fane Caesar Chavez uh, would have done it or evidence he would have done it. Uh, he was taken out. The LAPD got involved, and the LAPD seemed to want to prevent any appearance of it being a conspiracy. That they wanted to, like you say, it's an open and shut case. And I'm wondering how the LAPD, because they know that conspiracies happen. Okay, it's I mean whether you got a presidential candidate or not. Why would they be satisfied with one guy? We don't look for anybody else. I, I, I don't understand that. I mean, were they did, did, did they know that they were were they part of the, the gang or or what was what was their motives, if you, if you will? All right. The LAPD didn't actually investigate the Robert Kennedy assassination within days of of the murder. They set up a new unit inside the LAPD, and this was called Special Unit Senator. All right, that was a code name given to it. They brought in two guys, one of whom had been retired. Okay, they were Manny Pena and Hank Hernandez. 
All right. And these guys, these two guys, both had a history of being associated with the CIA. All right. Now, the guy who was ostensibly running it was a guy named Bill Houghton. But and he actually wrote a book called Special Unit Senator later on. All right. But the point is, if you look at all the documents, OK, and, and I know people who've done a lot of work on this case, and I've looked at some of these documents myself. It's really Pena and Hernandez who are running the show. And see, one of the things that you do is as if you're supervising an investigation like Pena was, is that you encourage certain avenues of inquiry and you discourage other leads. Well, I've actually seen uh, the testimony as to the girl in the polka dot dress. In other words, and, and there must have been, and I'm not exaggerating, there must have been 15 people who saw Sirhan with this girl in the polka dot dress. And across that information sheet with the witness testimony on it, Pena would write, bad lead, don't follow. Okay? All right. So in other words, they were actually discouraging people in the department, SUS, from going ahead and following that information. When in fact, I think any objective person would say that that was a very important lead to follow. Okay. Now, the other thing that happened is that Hernandez was the polygraph guy, okay, who would give lie detector tests. And I think anybody who studied this case, who has either read the transcript of or listened to his examination of Sandy Serrano, would say that this is one of the worst polygraph examinations that any technician could have ever given. Okay. Because he in see the, the last thing you're supposed to do is argue with the witness. Okay. And that's what he was trying to do. He was literally trying to talk her out of the story. Secondly, no polygraph examination should go longer than say 10 or 12 minutes. This lasted 60 minutes. Okay. All right. And so this is what happened inside the SUS. Then the third guy you had who was so important to the investigation is a guy named Dwayne Wolfer. Dwayne Wolfer was supposed to be their firearms expert. All right. Well, it'd be pretty hard to find a worse ballistics expert than Dwayne Wolfer. Okay. The, there were actually people trying to get him out of the department by 1968 because his work had been so biased uh, because, you know, you, you have a natural inclination if you're working for the police and the prosecution as what they call confirmation bias. You want to confirm the case that the prosecution's putting forward. Well, Wolfer went way, way overboard. For example, if you've ever seen his drawing of the crime scene, 
where he tried to map out the trajectories of all the bullets. See, because th this was the problem. You had too many people hit, and you had too many people who saw holes in the ceiling tiles and in the door jam going out of the pantry. In the JFK case, of course, you have this famous single bullet theory. You have this one bullet going through John F. Kennedy, exiting his body, then making a turn and going through John Conley, who's sitting in the jump seat in front of him. And then it goes through John Conley, and then it goes to the right and hits John Conley's wrist, and then it goes to the left and enters his left thigh. Okay, and we call that the single bullet theory. Some people call it the magic bullet theory. Well, in the RFK case, you have about three of those. Okay, <laughs> all right. And one guy and if with you, only eight bullets in it, and they, they, this thing must have been really jumping around. Well, it's really ridiculous. You, yeah. you have bullets flying off the floor, hitting the ceiling, bouncing off the ceiling, hitting somebody. If you take a look at that drawing, you'll see all the problems that Wolfer had putting this scenario together. Okay. All right. And then there's also the question of the chain of custody of Sirhan's uh, Ivory Johnson handgun. Okay. And plus a certain exhibit. I think it's called Special Exhibit 10 that was used at some of the post-trial hearings, okay, that that were held. Uh, Lisa Peace uh, wrote a very good book on this, okay, um, all right, and it, it was just published about a year or two ago, okay, A Lie Too Big to Fail, okay, and that's probably the best book on the RFK case, and she does a very good job of examining Dwayne Wolfer's work. Okay. Yeah. And what they did is they actually faked a picture of a bullet that was supposed to be withdrawn from Robert Kennedy's body, except it wasn't withdrawn from Bobby Kennedy's body. It was a different person that it had hit. Okay. And they put a picture together that was supposed to prove that that bullet came from Sirhan's handgun except because it was faked and altered, it didn't prove any such thing, okay? And this is how bad, this is how bad wow. Dwayne Wolfer's work was on this case, all right? Yeah. And so what I think if you examine, if you examine the prosecution's case, okay, I think what it ends up proving is that the fatal shot into Robert Kennedy actually did not come from Sirhan's handgun. If you really examine the true circumstances of the case. So the, the question then becomes, well, why then was Sirhan convicted? And well, the answer to that question is that another thing that Lisa goes over in her book is that his defense team was simply incompetent. They never even argued. They never even argued 
that well, how, did, how did they get such an incompetent like i think it was gary cooper who who oversaw it how did right. he get that kind of incompetence i mean what if he'd gotten somebody who's actually knew his stuff instead you know or or, or was this the, a, some sort of a setup as well the lead attorney was a guy named grant cooper okay the problem yeah. was that grant cooper was under investigation at the same time that he was supposed to be defending Sirhan. He was involved in something called the Friars Club case, all right, which was a, a case of, of cheating at weekly card games that were held at this very posh club called the Friars Club, all right? And what happened is that while he was defending one of the people who was up on charges, and by the way, one of the other guys who was up on charges who he wasn't defending was Johnny Rosselli, the famous CIA-associated mobster, okay? All right, and he was caught stealing grand jury transcripts. So... He was under investigation by the bar at the same time that he's supposed to be defending Sirhan. And I, I and most people have concluded that he was very conscious that his performance in the Sirhan trial might impact what his punishment would be, you know, by the bar association. Well, it turned out he got a slap on the wrist. Okay, he got something like a a thousand dollar fine, and if I recall correctly, he wasn't even suspended. Okay, his license was not suspended at all to practice law. Okay, so a lot of people, including Lisa, have concluded that this had an impact on because to give you an example, he was called by a ballistics expert okay who had done a study of uh, the ballistics uh, evidence in the robert kennedy case okay and he had concluded a guy named bill harper he had concluded that that no there had to have been shots from two different directions okay and he left a call for Cooper and he said, I'd like to talk to you about this. And Cooper never even returned a phone call. All right. Mm -hmm. So this is the kind of thing, you know, that Sirhan really didn't have a defense. Yeah. Okay. All right. And, and so what they pleaded, they tried to plead that, uh, that Sirhan was uh, either incompetent or had lost his marbles okay for that instant okay and so they kind of played into the hands of the prosecution because they yeah. didn't see what you do there what's what this is called is that it's a plea in which you agree not to argue the evidence okay and that's what happened he had made an agreement with the prosecution that he wouldn't argue the evidence in the case. So this okay. whole the situation, it, it seems to demonstrate how it's less important to, to contain the crime 
so much as to control the cover-up. Right. There's all this stuff out there that uh, they can't get. So you have to just prevent a proper evidentiary hearing of this uh, of this case. Um, and I just want to get back to Sirhan Sirhan for a moment because you you insinuated or, or alleged that he was probably a, a victim of one of these uh, uh, mind control events. I think they called it MK Ultra, basically the Sirhanian Manchurian candidate. Do you know anything about Sirhan's background where he may have come across some of this uh, hypno hypnosis and, and, and how he would have been delivered to the point where you know, you, you execute the, the thing with the, uh, the, the, the woman in the, in the poly dot dress. Well, look, there's, there's a lot of, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of evidence that would indicate that Sirhan was, as you mentioned, under post-hypnotic suggestion or for people who have seen the movie, uh, it's it's something called a Manchurian candidate, okay, where you put somebody under hypnosis and then you program them. And then at the end of the session, you say, um, I'm now going to awaken you, but you will, you will remember uh, in your subconscious mind what I just told you. And by, and by the way, people think that that's far out. Okay, but if you go to any kind of stage show with a hypnotist, you will see it happening. There's some people who are very susceptible to going into what they call a trance state. Okay, it's not uncommon at all. Okay, and so, and what, what happens is, that a professional hypnotist, okay, will will grade you, okay, on what they call a one to five scale, all right? One being least hypnotizable, five being very easily hypnotized. And psychologists who have studied Sirhan, all right, place him as a five. He's that easy to hypnotize. And in fact, the last guy who had a session with him, Daniel Brown, who I think is a professional psychologist from Harvard, all right? He said that the, the problem with Sirhan was not hypnotizing him. It was getting him out of the trance state. That's how deep he would go into a trance state, all right? All right, now, the person that most people suspect of being the guy who hypnotized Sirhan uh, was a guy named Joseph Bryan, who was a, a very professional, who had actually written and studied books about the subject matter, all right? Located, had a big office in Los Angeles, okay? And on, on the night, now get this, on the night of Robert Kennedy's assassination, all right, now, re remember, this is the very night it happened. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows what's going on. On that night, he was on the Ray Bream radio show, which was a very, very famous uh, talk program in L.A. He's on the show. 
out of nowhere, out of nowhere, he says that, you know, Ray, now I'm not quoting him. These are, this is, this is a, 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 an approximation of what he said. He said, you know, Ray, this cane sounds to me like the Manchurian candidate. <laughs> Who on earth that early when you don't have hardly any details of what happened? Who could possibly suggest such a thing, you know, at that stage of the game? But there he was saying that this sounds like the case of a Manchurian candidate to me, you know? And so a lot of people, a lot of people who have written essays and books on the case strongly think that he was a guy responsible for, and there's a lot more evidence for this anyway, but I won't go into it, but he was a guy responsible for going ahead and putting Sirhan under post-hypnotic suggestion. Okay. Um, now, I guess, yeah, we're getting close to the end of our time, but I'd like you to just update things a little bit. Um, I know that, uh, you know, in, in, in recent years, there was uh, talk about uh, Kamala Harris was actually in a position to, uh, to give, uh, to, to get Sirhan Sirhan actually released or at least get a proper uh, evidentiary hearing for him. I know that, our, that Robert F. Kennedy's son, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. actually saw Sirhan Sirhan and suggested that I, I don't think he did it or that he didn't do it alone or something like that. Are, are there any, any points that you want to raise since the, uh, well, over the last maybe, you know, five or 10 years that really updates the record on, on where Sirhan Sirhan is at? All right. Cam As most people know, Kamala Harris had been the attorney general for California before she became a senator, all right? She was in a position to grant Sirhan and his attorneys what's called an evidentiary hearing, all right? What, and what that would have done is if you could have raised enough doubts about the official story that you then could have had a reopening and a new trial. All right. So Sirhan's attorneys had filed for this. And this was, uh, I actually read the, the petition. Okay. And it, it, it was, it was a good petition. And, and it, and if I believe, I believe if that would have been granted. Okay. I think Sirhan would have walked, All right? What Kamala Harris did, she was in a very strong position to either grant the petition or deny the petition. If she would have offered no reply, then the evidentiary hearing would have gone forward. She decided to go ahead and contest the petition, okay? And I'll, I'll tell you, if you read both of them, you'll understand why she didn't want to do it, okay? Because her reply was so weak, okay? You know, but that's all the judge had to see is that she had replied in the negative, okay? And 
so therefore, that's why it ended up being that he didn't get the evidentiary hearing. All right. Now, so now, and I strongly, anybody who's listening, there is a parole hearing coming up for Sirhan next month. Okay. No, excuse me. It's coming up in August. Okay. All right. At the website, kennedysandking.com, you will see uh, an article about this. And we go ahead and tell you how to write a letter to the parole board. Okay. Please follow those instructions. All right. Because the new attorney for Sirhan, Angela Berry, okay, is very experienced about this. And so what happens is do not argue the case. Do not argue the facts of the case. Argue the point that Sirhan has been in prison far too long compared to other people. Okay, uh, the, I think I'm pretty sure the standard uh, jail term is something like 16 years. Well, just do the arithmetic. Sirhan has been in, in prison for about three times that. Okay, yeah. so it's very, very unfair, especially the fact that he's been a model prisoner. OK, you know, uh, yeah. so so go to the website, kennedysandking.com, take a look at that article. And she is essentially instructs you how to write the letter and who to mail it to. And do do us a favor. Before you snail mail the letter, email a copy to the website. The instructions are there on how to do that so that uh we can be sure that when she walks into the parole hearing, she'll have some of these letters in front of her, okay, from interested parties. Okay, so, so and hopefully, hopefully, we'll finally at least get, if he didn't get the evidentiary hearing, uh, he'll at least uh, get out of prison. Okay, well, that's a, that's a good review of, of Robert F. Kennedy's uh... Uh, case and uh, yeah, I thank you very much for it. But before you go, could you say a few words about an event coming up on Monday? It's a, it's a release of a new movie, right? Okay. Oliver Stone has uh, directed a new documentary uh, called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. I wrote the script for it and I've worked on it for the, the last couple of years. All right. And it's going to premiere at the Cannes Film Festival uh, next weekend. Okay. Sunday, on Sunday night, next Sunday night, Oliver's going to be there and he's going to show the director's cut of the, the feature film JFK. Then on Monday, the 12th, there will be a closed screening for the press certain celebrities and certain local dignitaries to watch the documentary, the two hour version. Then on Tuesday, that will be considered the world premiere and then you can actually buy tickets for it, okay? And the world will finally see this documentary we've been working on for, for, for the last couple of years. We interviewed something like 29 people, okay? Like Dr. Henry Lee, uh, Dr. Cyril Wecht, Dr. David Mantic, Dr. Gary Aguilar, 
uh, historian John Newman, David Talbot, the founder of Salon Magazine. Okay, uh, various, uh, I could go on and on. Okay, but it's a grand total of 29 people that we talked to. All right, and we've got this wonderful archival footage. We got Whoopi Goldberg and Donald Sutherland to do the narration for us. Okay, and I, 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 in my opinion, it really kind of changes the map of the case. Because what we did is we put together all the new evidence that came out of the files that the movie JFK was finally allowed to declassify. Two million pages, okay, of new material were declassified. And there were some investigations done by the ARB and they're all packed into this movie. Now this is the two hour version. They're also preparing a four hour version. Okay, that's, that's I, I believe that'll be even better than this one because it's even more information. And so that's what's happening uh, next week at the Cannes Film Festival. So keep your eyes and ears tuned. There'll be some information and some noise coming out. Oliver Stone is back into the case. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's great the first time too. And uh, it's been, you know, it's uh, really advanced now over 30 years. Um, mm. So thank you so much for being part of our conversation this week. You're coming back again next week. Uh, by any chance, would you care to I, share? I, I, I'm, coming, I'm coming back next week? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're inviting me on the air, so I can't say no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't know. Who, who would you like? So, to you, so you, you, you want me to be here for after the premiere? Of, uh, of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we could talk about JFK afterward, no? All right. Okay. Okay. I'll see you then. Okay. Thank you so right. much. Uh, take care, James DiEugenio. Okay, bye-bye. That was James DiEugenio, California-based historian and researcher, speaking on the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. We'll feature another of the great 60s assassinations on next week's broadcast. You've been tuned to the Global Research News Hour, a show funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. The show airs on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on our show, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Music for this week's broadcast is Shifting Sands by Purple Planet Music, accessible on the website purple-planet.com. I've been your host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us. Music